We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land on which we are recording today. We would also like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who are listening today. It all started 10 years ago in my kitchen. I asked my family what about energy ratings, and after a short pause, it was yes, yes, and yes. Hi, my name's Jonathan Tavella, founder of Freighter Consulting Services, director of Sustainability Tech Partners, and co-host of this podcast, which we've aptly named Sustainabible. It's a series of episodes which aims to equip you, the listener, with the knowledge I've gathered on my journey. We'll be speaking with industry leaders that have a pivotal role in the sustainability movement. It's all about joining the dots for you. Joining the dots indeed. And as you've just heard, Jonathan has a wealth of experience under his belt when it comes to sustainability and the building industry. Me, not so much. Hi, I'm Neary Tai and I'll be the co-host on this podcast. Jonathan, my friend, has roped me along and hopefully we'll learn a thing or two on this sustainable journey. So if you're like me and want to build a dream home one day that's more environmentally friendly, hopefully by the end of this series, you'll be more informed and equipped to do so. This is Sustainable. Did you look at your garden and think, how can this help my home be more sustainable? You can improve your home's energy efficiency simply by popping down to your local nursery and becoming somewhat of a green thumb. It's the most underrated aspect of the sustainability journey, your garden. The trees, the plants, it's often overlooked when it comes to configuring an environmentally sustainable designed home. So we caught up with the guru of landscape architects, John Patrick. He has close to 50 years of experience up his sleeve. And along with his co-director, Kylie May, we learned a thing or two. When it comes to sort of environmentally sort of sustainable design homes, a lot of people look at your insulation and, you know, what windows to use. But do you find that not many know about landscape architecture and how that can actually impact the whole? Yeah, yeah I, think, I think you're right. And I think it's not only private individuals, but I think the community and, and the planning system it, you know, increasingly, we have to give up space for bike parking. We have to give up spacing f- for disabled access. We give up space for f- those big red fireboxes and the various meters and the so on. And by the time you've got all the things onto the front of a site for an apartment development, any space left for landscaping is really quite, mo- very often quite modest. And so the benefits that you can put onto that site that stem from landscaping is really, is quite limited. There are um, some developments which are taking place where in landscape is integrated into them and and um, and those you know are really are really very good and there's a number of them around and particularly in the north of Melbourne suburbs. but you know I, I think the more run-of-the-mill projects it, it it doesn't get integrated the way it should and planting planting and, and other aspects of landscaping can make a very positive impact. On, to, on how easy it is and how comfortable it is to live in a, even just an ordinary suburban home. And if, they're, um, and if you do it well and if you work with it well, you can have some really positive effects. And one of the things I, I do find interesting is sometimes I come across home gardeners 
who have found this out for themselves. And and I remember doing a story for, for Gardening Australia some years ago where uh, there was a really nice house, north-facing terrace, but the woman had just designed some simple screens using a, a, a low-cost fabric that she just used to pull out over a framework and just create a little bit of light shade in the mm-hmm. summer. Now, that's not using vegetation. It's using a, a fabric to do it. But it made all the difference to that microclimate. I think we're a bit behind the scenes here. When I came out here in 1980, there was a, a book by a man called Gary Robinette, who was uh, who was publishing in the USA. And he was working for an American government agency and doing research and writing these books for this government agency. And, and one of his books particularly was, was about using plants to modify climate. And it was published, I think, about 77, 78. And I still use it mm. now. It's it's so pertinent to what we should be doing. And yet we're not doing all of the things that he was championing in that book. And it seems to me we are a little behind the time. The Germans were doing a lot of this green roof stuff. I remember when I was a student in the 1970s. And, and they were, they're, they're way ahead of us in some of this stuff. Um, so we are catching up. Uh, but we're starting behind the behind the eight ball a bit. So referencing that particular book, what are some good ideas for someone that is got their own home, there's a little backyard, where should they start? One of the unfortunate things we've got here, and I do find it a constant challenge myself, is that the best way to create a shaded terrace is to use a, a, some good deciduous trees. Because what you really want to try is you want to capture winter sunlight some days we do get really pleasant late autumn, winter, early spring days, believe it or not. You do get those days when there's lovely light and warmth coming in. So you want the winter warmth and light coming in, and deciduous trees allow that. But then they also, of course, provide the shade in summer so that they create a cooler microclimate and environment for you to sit in in the summer. Deciduous trees are perfect. You use the evergreen trees and you lose some of that winter advantage because they're going to hold their leaves all through the winter. We're quite lucky in that trees like uh, lemon-scented gum sensuous, which is a nice dwarf-growing form of it, it's not a very dense canopy tree. So you get some summer shade, but perhaps not quite as deep as you might like. And you get some winter light entry, but perhaps not quite as much as you might like. But it's giving you a reasonable outcome. And and you really need to look carefully at, at the trees. We don't have... I'm always trying to think of deciduous native trees, and the only one I think of is Melia rosederach, the white cedar. Uh, and, 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 and it's a bit messy for many home gardens, mm. but it is a, a deciduous tree that's native to Australia, which would allow you that. But we don't have many of them. Our deciduous trees tend to be summer deciduous because deciduous foliage is about avoiding the hard time. And, and, and the northern hemisphere deciduous trees are about avoiding the real misery of northern hemisphere winter. But southern hemisphere Australian deciduous trees are about avoiding the heat of summer. So our brachychitans, they tend to shed their leaves in the summer because they don't want to be losing water in dry conditions. So they're summer deciduous, and that's the last thing you want. Uh, you really want plants that are... So, so we find ourselves using lots of things like crepe myrtles, which are a perfect tree for a small garden. They flower beautifully, lovely bark, great autumn colour, nice form, not too big, and you get the winter light entry and you also get the summer shade. 
Uh, and so that's a, a that's the sort of plant that people should be thinking about using. So that they're they're creating a nice courtyard space to sit out in, where they feel comfortable in summer, but they also you know feel, getting the benefits in in winter. The other things that I don't think we use enough of are um, are climbing plants. And if you can use some self clinging climbing plants, what those plants can do is with their foliage in summer, uh, they trap the air behind them so they've got a, a you've got this insulating layer of cool air but behind the climbing plant which which then is it keeps the house cool but more than that the shade of the foliage of that climbing plant shades the front of the building in winter when the leaves drop off of course any warmth that you've got coming from the north winter sun goes into the building and warms it a little bit and then when summer comes again the leaves redevelop and they shade it so uh, plants like boston ivy and virginia creeper you know which have and, and, and there's a beauty called silver vein creeper they're all parthenocissus uh, they give that fantastic effect of, of summer shade winter heat uptake in australia for some reason people are very loathe to use self clinging climate plants and yet they are a wonderful group of plants uh, they soften the built form they soften its presentation they green it up and, and they give you that sort of climate modification the best way to grow it is in natural soil mm-hmm. and people do try growing them out of um, planters there's not research on this that I've seen but I think we work in the office and it's been put to me that cubic soil of growing medium will carry about 10 square meters of climbing plant so that's not very much when you think about it five meters mm-hmm. by two meters that's not going to achieve much but if you can plant it into natural soil they they'll grow quite large and they look f- and, and they just look fantastic where does vegetables and things like that what sort of part does that play with obviously we were talking about sustainability here and a part of that is sort of a holistic way of the way you live inside your house yeah i mean it cuts down on things like transporting vegetables it kind of it reduces all of that and 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 it's got a you get a really nice feel it brings you close to to plants it encourages you perhaps that you can grow plants and therefore it probably encourages you to plant other plants so i think it's i think it's a really good thing to, uh, we have a we have raised planters uh, we recycle some of our homemade compost into them so that, that that it's a way of using of using that and, and um, Kylie, I know you you grow a lot of vegetables in planters. Yeah, I found too that by growing your own veggies and that the children are more open to to trying different vegetables mm. and that. So our daughter she loves broccoli and that because we've grown it in the garden, so she's seen it growing. And I've heard of other people who say, oh, my child won't eat tomatoes unless they've been you know grown by you or grown That's by fantastic. grandma or someone like yeah. that. And so it gives the the children an idea of where the food and that comes from as well. We've got four veggie gardens that are self-watering, so they're set up so that you're not, particularly during those really hot days, you're not having to keep the water up to your tomatoes and things. So the bottom half of the raised planter is is a gravel. It's all lined so that it acts like your self-watering pots and so you might fill it up on the weekend so that it's all full of water and then it wicks up through through the soil. And so on those really hot days when veggie gardens can sometimes fail because they just can't get enough moisture into them, by having the, the self-wicking and the, the self-watering system, it, it can keep those, those plants going. We grow all sorts of tomatoes, cucumbers, um, try and have those in so you've got them ready for Christmas. And a lot of your leafy greens, um, your broccoli, just need to 
put covers over them at times for the possums and that. But there's all sorts of different pots that are that are available. You, you don't have to have a specialised vegetable garden. You can. There's plenty of things that can be grown just in your normal little size pots. And I was about to ask that, like yeah, terraces and sort of inner city and rooftop community gardens on top of apartment buildings. That's sort of a, a way and direction people want to go. Mm. And all of this is sort of over and above a planning scheme yeah. where like you don't have to do a rooftop community garden to get a, a planning permit approved for apartments or what have you. But it's definitely a direction that everyone's taking it. What does John Patrick's as a firm and yourself as a designer, have you actually worked on those projects and, and what did you uncover in that process? We've done a number of, of rooftop gardens. Um, some of them uh, contain fruit and veggies. A lot of them are, are just um, areas on top of, of apartment buildings where residents can go and enjoy a barbecue or a few drinks okay. and yep. things like that. Um, some of the main things that need to be taken into consideration are the amount of soil volume available and, and obviously the, the more soil, the more plants and that you have um, on these rooftops, the, the more weight, and so it all has to be engineered, and so it, it's not just a matter of, of bringing up a, you know, a couple of bags of, of soil and throwing them around. It, it has to come right from the, the very start, the very design process, basically engineered up so that um, to make sure that one, it can withhold the, the weight and everything, and also because you'll be watering these areas and that the waterproofing and that also needs to be very high standard to, to make sure you don't run into to issues there. And then even down to, to the plants that can be, be planted in these areas um, on rooftops, they're usually a lot more open to the elements, so there's a lot more wind and the likes up there. So you're looking at some plants that are, a lot of the plants need to be a lot more robust than if they were in sort of a, a garden setting down below and so you're looking at some of the the more robust type of trees um, even right down to, to your ground covers and the likes. I love that macro thought process of Kylie you're talking about the kids learning how yeah. to grow and Getting as them a consequence yeah they eat it respecting the climate the fauna that's in front of them. It's quite important because if they can actually respect the trees and what it gives them and the vegetables and what it gives them, then they think twice before wanting to bulldoze something. They think twice about, do I actually need to remove it? When it comes time to building their own house, do they, do they think about how I work around the landscape that's already existing? Um, and, and or if I need to take something out, what can I do to replace it that gives more back than what I took out? So that sort of respect of landscape is actually a, a, a really, like it's not a direct play into sustainability, but the flow on is actually very impactful into sustainability. So as a broad concept, it's very interesting. Well, I think, Kylie, you, you might like to talk a little bit about the idea of sustainability with trees because, you know, everybody seems to think that if you've got a tree population in an urban, it's there forever. Mm. But, I mean, an important thing, a part of your work as an arborist is is in is in uh, trying to direct people to sustain the tree population. That's correct. So notice in some parks and that a lot of the, the trees there are starting to get to an age where um, we need to start looking at, at replacing some of the trees because they've they've over a hundred years old and um, and with that they they're they're starting to decline and so 
one of the issues that, that councils and that can then have is, OK, these trees need to start being replaced, um, but the community sees trees which may look like they are quite healthy and that being taken out, but it's all part of a, um, a replacement strategy where you may need to take out some trees that aren't quite at the end of their life to be able to get new trees going. And, and it's the same a bit in, in gardens and that as well. So we quite often go around um, looking at doing assessments for, for planning applications and things. And, and a lot of the overlays and the local laws and that are aimed at protecting big, large trees. There's, there's a certain size that you need a permit to, to remove trees um, for and that often um, protects the, the bigger, the larger ones and the older trees uh, at the and so that the, a lot of the smaller trees, the up and coming trees can then be taken out because a, a permit's not required and so you end up with this ageing population of trees that have, have been protected because people aren't allowed to take them out whereas the, the next generation they've all been taken out and they will put new trees in, but there's sort of a generational gap there of, of trees that, um, that, that has been taken out because of, of what of a lot of the planning laws and, and local laws around, around tree protection are. So you have trees with a trunk of 150 mil, which might be a 30-year-old tree, mm. and it can be taken out. Well, that means you've lost 30 years of growth and you've kept a tree that's 120 year old, years old that may only have another 10 years mm. of useful life. Hey, such an interesting question. Yeah. Yeah. another 90 years to so go. It's a bit of a misconception, isn't there? So do you just think, keep them, save them. So do you think planning enables or, or hinders the way it's currently written and designed? It's probably a, a, a bit of both. With, without making smaller trees needing permits and that, I don't know how councils work it so that, that these smaller trees can be, be retained because there needs to be a bit of give and take, I guess, um, in that, OK, we'll keep some of these smaller trees, but we will need to remove this larger tree um, to, to enable the... And it's, it's not always a, a, a development of, um, you know, an apartment or even a dual occupancy. Sometimes it's just someone wanting to put in a new single dwelling on the property. A large tree that may only have another 10, 15 years of useful life expectancy and that's hindering where, where the, um, the building and that can, can take place, um, where it might be better to allow that tree to be removed but, but keep this one over here, which is, is younger and, and will give a lot more useful life to the, not, not just that actual property but the surrounding properties as well but it, it needs um it needs a number of things to happen it needs community education that trees have got finite lives uh, it needs a recognition that um uh, that if you don't take if you don't allow some of those big old trees to go so that the next generation of trees can be planted you're, you're actually um, almost robbing your children and grandchildren of the opportunity of seeing vegetation because and, and, and what is notable if you go to the botanic gardens is the botanic gardens are being really proactive now in taking out some of the larger older trees that they know are in decline and putting in the next generation of vegetation if they don't do that uh, then the botanic gardens ages as a population you lose all the trees in a big storm and you, you've got nothing uh, and one of the things that uh, happened in Europe in about the, the 19, late 1980s, a huge storm went through. 
Versailles, the great French garden, mm. and Faux le Vicon, and um, they were blown to smithereens because they only had older trees. Oh. And so they then had to replace all of these all at once. Whereas had they taken a policy perhaps of doing some removal and some replacement progressively, you'd have had some younger trees with probably a better ability to tolerate mm. the storms. And so you often find that if we don't manage the population, nature will do it and it's much less it's much less sort of sensitive it's much less calculating and caring about which trees it breaks and damages Mm. and you also have the impact where big trees fall on smaller trees and so on Uh, if you can if you can convince the community to be proactive about tree removal and replacement strategies you very often have a more robust tree population and you also have a tree population which is going to serve future generations rather than being dominated by trees that serves this generation we tend to be selfish we tend to want to keep maintain the familiar which we know and value Rather than saying, hang on, I'm, I'm being really selfish here. I'm looking at a park where there are 60 mature trees and they're all going to need to be replaced in the next 10 or 15 years. Why don't we do it progressively so that it's starting and it's taking place? We keep some of the old. We're not saying take more. That's not what we're saying at all. But just program it and manage it so that the benefits of trees are there for this generation the succeeding generation and generations to come. They all have a nice shady tree to sit and picnic beneath. Such an such an important it's a really concept. We've learned so many new things today. So with that, and let's paint the picture in the sense that I live in suburbia. I'm about to embark on landscaping my front and backyard. What are the takeaways to consider? Well, why don't we do alternate alternating ones, Kylie? What would be your first one? Probably ensure there's enough room for for. Uh, decent decent sized trees and for them to be able to to mature to to their full potential um, it's no use planting a, a tree that can grow to say six or seven meters wide up against a, a building where it's only two meters off the building so you, you need to to be able to have the benefit of these trees you need to give them the opportunity to full to grow to their full potential yep my one number two would be Understand the microclimates of your garden. Understand that the north-facing part of your garden is going to be hottest, driest. It's going to need shade. The southern side of your garden is more sheltered, more protected. The eastern side is early morning sun, never going to be quite as hot as the western side, which is that late afternoon sun, which builds upon the heat built up during the summer. So if you start to understand the microclimate of your garden, it allows you to understand those microclimates and how they relate to you. So you can start to create parts of the garden that are comfortable for you to be in. And you know that you might have one area that's comfortable in winter, but you may not be don't use that in summer because it's mm. going to be too hot. But it also allows you to understand where you need to use trees or other plants to soften and ameliorate those microclimates. And it also allows you to understand where you can plant particular plants because they enjoy different microclimates. So if you've got a shaded area, choose a plant that likes growing in shade for that location. Understanding your microclimate is about both you and your plants and your house, really. And the way in which you can ameliorate those conditions. I love that word, ameliorate. <laughs> Any more, Carly? One that John alluded to earlier was 
don't feel that the planting needs to be restricted to to trees and shrubs and ground covers. Look at look at vertical surfaces as as well, and and make use of those through through climbers. And it's not just the the um, perennial climbers that that John was talking about. Even a lot of your vegetables and that can be pl- planted on on climbers. You things like your cucumbers and zucchinis and that. Yeah. So even in a small garden. Um, use vertical surfaces or create vertical surfaces to, which will allow more planting. Find out for yourself. It's easy these days to go onto the internet to find out something about plants, how big they'll grow, the conditions they like and so on. And uh, I, I mean, it's very easy to go along to the big green box and ask for advice. But if you do some work of your own first, you can go along to your nursery or the big green box, wherever you choose to go, sort of pre-armed with information. And I think you want to be doing your garden from a position of strength, not a position of ignorance. Even if you just do a little bit of simple research and just do a little bit of finding out, you can start to understand quite a lot about the range of plants that might suit your garden. And, you know, not just turn up at a nursery where they may offer you three alternatives, none of which really is perfect for your need. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you do a little bit more work, you can often go on the internet too and find that there are nurseries that specialise in some of these plants and can supply you the plant, which is the perfect plant for your need. So self-educate, that's a really useful thing to do. That's great. Thank you so much for your time. Well, I hope it was. That was great. That was so informative. I'm going to go out and do a bit more research and yeah, and buy she's some not plants. and she's not lying. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, tell me more. Thanks for listening to Sustain a Bible. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Click on the links for more information on the topics we've discussed today.